You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. So far, the writer of this letter, could also be a sermon possibly, has tried to inspire us by outlining the superiority, the clear superiority of Jesus Christ over every other leader we might turn to biblically. And that includes Moses, Joshua, Aaron. And more recently, uh, in the last two weeks, we've transitioned to a part of this letter, this sermon, where the author has begun to explain how not just the person of Jesus is better, but the work of Jesus is better than the former spiritual path the old covenant of Judaism, if you will, the sacrificial system of the Levitical priesthood. And in fact, when the writer was talking about this idea of Jesus as our great high priest, an image he's going to continue to unpack, he gave us this this cryptic, elusive reference to Jesus not being a part of the Levitical priesthood, but being from the order of Melchizedek. And it looked like he was about to expand on this, but then it was soon interrupted as the writer paused. This is what we looked at last week. The writer paused because the writer believed that we weren't ready. We weren't ready to hear more, that we weren't ready to keep growing because we weren't prepared to keep going. And instead of moving forward, we were told in that that passage that we looked at last week that started and ended in five and went to six, that we were actually heading backwards in our relationship. Instead of walking by faith, we were chided for acting like spiritual babies. And in an attempt to rally us in the midst of this, an appeal was made for us to grow up. We were cautioned against turning away from all we have received in Christ. And it was a hard word at first. But then, if you remember, what appeared at first to be a rebuke ended up becoming a strong word of encouragement for us to hold on to the very end, to the assurance that God offers us in Christ. And that leads us to today, because today, as we get back into chapter 6, we're going to hear the writer of this letter, this sermon, share with us the very foundation, what the very foundation of this assurance that we have is. So let's read from Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope. As an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you didn't catch it in this brief part of chapter 6, the theme of today's message is hope. And that's a theme, that's a word 
that was much needed for this predominantly Jewish Christian community to whom this letter was first written. If you remember, and we've talked about this before, together this community had experienced their share of suffering. They had endured persecution, hardship, loss even, particularly for their witness to Christ. And as a result, many were beginning to lose hope. And that experience, that experience of losing hope is one to which we can all relate. Most of us have felt at some point in our lives, you know, the anxiety, the disorientation of being lost, of finding ourselves in situations that we didn't see coming. Various circumstances, from joblessness to crippling debt, from debilitating illness to loneliness, from powerlessness to addiction to depression, all can leave us with no idea where to go in our lives. And it doesn't take much for this fog of uncertainty to soon be eclipsed by a creeping sensation that every path before us is a dead end that we are in fact trapped in a prison rather than lost in a maze. When life beats us down, when our circumstances go from bewildering to discouraging to desperate, we can be left feeling hopeless. I didn't know this could happen to me. I didn't, never expected things to go this way. I can't deal with this. Hopeless. People for whom hope has ebbed away, they become listless. They become lifeless. They're just going through the motions. They're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're just trying to avoid something worse from happening. Hopelessness feeds our fear even as it starves our faith. There's no way for me to cope, let alone get beyond this. I'm not going to recover from this one. I'm not going to recover. I, 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 I can't ever be at peace. I'm never going to be at peace. My, my life is over. Without hope, we're tempted to give up, to give in to the darkness rather than to carry on and to keep believing, to keep reaching for the light. But the thing is, we worship a God who wants us to have hope. That's what the author wants us to understand today. We worship a God who wants us to have hope. We encounter through the word and the spirit a God who knows the brokenness of our lives, who understands the difficulties we face, how the difficulties we face in this fractured world can so shake and unsettle us that we find ourselves adrift. God purposes for all of us, all of his children, to have hope. Hope in his provision. Hope in the knowledge that we are safe and secure in his love and grace. But how do we know? How do we know? How do we know our hope in God is certain? How can we be sure that what we are hopeful for, thanks to God, will not ever become hopeless? To answer this question, the writer of Hebrews points to God's relationship with Abraham in this passage. And in order to fully understand what he's saying, we need to remember, we need to kind of reorient ourselves to that relationship with Abraham. 
God, you might remember, chose Abraham who lived in the aftermath of the Noahic flood, after the flood of Noah. In that flood, humanity was not completely destroyed because from the very beginning, despite our rebellion and disobedience, the Lord vowed to redeem all creation, including us. So God called Abraham and his family line to be the seed through which his purposes, God's hope for the world, would be fulfilled. If you don't remember, this all begins in Genesis chapter 12 when God first makes this promise to Abraham and calls him to go, to leave his home, his country, his people, everything that Abraham knows and understands, to leave it all behind to follow him. And God promises Abraham in going that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. We talked about this last week, but how about another example of being stretched in order to grow? Abraham was stretched in order to grow. And God said that if you go, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. That's Genesis chapter 12. Then later in Genesis chapter 15, God reaffirms this promise that he made to Abraham by making a covenant with him, by assuring him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Then again in Genesis 17, God assures Abraham once more of the fulfillment of his promise. He says the fulfillment of this promise will begin through a son that will be born to he and his wife Sarah, even though they have both remained childless for nearly nine decades of life. Nine decades. Genesis 17, you might remember, is also where circumcision is established as a sign of the promise of that blessing, of full and abundant and flourishing life that again goes well beyond just the person of Abraham, but extends to a nation called Israel. And again, the reach of the Lord's promise is articulated in Genesis 17 as being even further than that, beyond one nation, beyond Israel, to all the nations, all the people of the world. What the writer is quoting here is Genesis chapter 22, when God repeats yet again his promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, after having waited decades without any children of his own, Abraham and Sarah indeed together have a son named Isaac. Hardly the multitude of descendants that God promised, but it's a start. However, if you know this story in Genesis chapter 22, for a quick second, even the one son the Lord has given them looks as though he's going to be tragically lost. But Isaac is saved. And in that moment when Isaac is saved, God again repeats his promise to Abraham and this time takes an oath. So are you tracking with this? I know I went through it really quickly. Let me hit it one more time real fast. First, God gave a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Then God gave Abraham a covenant in Genesis chapter 15. Then God gave Abraham a covenant sign, a sign of the promise in Genesis 17. And then God swore an oath to Abraham in Genesis 22. Do you wonder why God is making all these assurances? I mean, if a promise is a promise, then why does the Lord keep making the same promise? And I don't know if this even came across your radar at all, but how about this idea of God taking an oath? We might, if we know our Bibles, think, wait a second, I thought taking oaths was bad. What about all that let your yes be yes and your no be no stuff? Didn't Jesus tell us? Didn't Jesus teach us we aren't supposed to take oaths? What is God doing here? Is God breaking his own rules? Let's talk about that. Swearing, 
or oath-taking became a custom that derived out of predominantly oral cultures. In the ancient world, most people were not literate. And paper was a precious, expensive, and therefore scarce commodity. As a result, signed legal documents were not commonplace. So, whenever someone wanted to guarantee their promise, he or she gave their word. In a matter of a dispute or a disagreement, the ultimate claim one could make to the truth of one's position was to swear to it, to take an oath. More than this, if you wanted to double dog or triple dog dare you, right? More than this, to give serious value to the trustworthiness of that oath, one would swear by his or her God. Now, contrary to popular understanding, the Lord does not prohibit the taking of oaths. In fact, initially, if you go back into the Old Testament, the Lord requires the Israelites to take an oath only in his name rather than swearing by some false god. And Jesus later clarifies this teaching further in telling us not to swear in the Lord's name just for effect, just to show off. This is because breaking an oath made in God's name was a serious offense. To break an oath in God's name wasn't just offending the truth of the particular situation, it was also to insult the character of God. When someone breaks an oath made in God's name, that person isn't just making themselves out to be a liar. He or she is making God out to be a liar as well. And that's why oaths that were made in the Lord's name back then often went like this. I swear, if I am not telling the truth, if I am not good for what I promised to do, then may God strike me down. I deserve to be struck down by God. Jesus doesn't teach us not to make oaths. Jesus simply tells us, you don't need to swear in God's name at all if you just let your yes be yes and your no be no. In today's world, as we draw up contracts and sign important documents, as we go to court and serve as jurors or witnesses, we continue to make promises. We continue to take oaths. In our day-to-day conversations, when things get particularly passionate, sometimes even a little bit heated, whether they believe in God or not, people swear by some higher power. I swear to God, I swear to God, I swear. We raise our hands up to heaven. We place our hands on our hearts. I cross my heart and hope to die, we say. In courtrooms, we are asked to put one hand on a Bible to hold up our other hand and to solemnly swear to a higher authority, a greater level of accountability. Do you ever wonder why? Why are we asked to do that? It's a really simple answer. We're asked to do that because our inclination is to lie. Our default is not always to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, the whole truth, so help me God. Human beings make promises. The reason why we make promises, human beings swear oaths. The reason why we swear oaths is because we lie. In fact, you ever think about this? And maybe, maybe that you relate to this. When we think our hide's on the line, when we think we're in trouble, what are we tempted to do? We're even tempted to, to lie by swearing, to use an oath not to tell the truth, but to further the lie we are telling. Um, I'm going to confess to you that I was especially practiced in this when I was growing up. 
I got in trouble a lot. And when I got in trouble, when my parents were saying, we, we know you did this, I would be like, oh, I swear. I swear I didn't do it. I swear to God, I didn't do it. I swear to God, I didn't do it. And I want you to know it never worked at all. And I know that when I, when I see the Lord, he's going to have a lot of conversation with me about that because I swore on his name a lot. But I didn't swear as a way to express the truth. I swore in his name as a way to further the lie I was telling. Human beings swear oaths because we're untrustworthy. And sometimes even when we take oaths, we still lie. But God doesn't lie. The writer in this passage openly points that out. God doesn't lie. God doesn't have a problem with lying. So why does God take an oath? God takes an oath for Abraham, not because his word is weak, that his word is somehow suspect or, eh, I don't know. God takes an oath for Abraham, not because his word is weak, but because Abraham's faith is weak. I don't know if you caught this as well. I just love how in this passage, the author of Hebrews, in making reference back to Abraham, just casually throws this out. Here's the scripture on the screen. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. You have to imagine there were some raised eyebrows, maybe even some slight smirks on the part of those who first heard this. Because if you know Abraham's story at all, you know that Abraham didn't wait patiently at all. Abraham didn't wait patiently at all. For the 25 years when God first made his initial promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, to when it was fulfilled, Abraham had repeated lapses of faith when confronted by various obstacles. His most significant lapse of faith, you might recall, was born of his impatience, in fact. Trying to jumpstart God's promise, Abraham took matters into his own hands and had a surrogate child with his servant Hagar instead of with his wife. It's because Abraham's faith was weak, God repeated his promise. God was willing, think about this, God was willing to stand up on the witness stand and take an oath in order to reassure Abraham of his promises. In fact, when we look at this, God's oath to Abraham, when it says, I will surely bless you, that is better translated, most literally translated in the original language, if I don't surely bless you. If I don't surely bless you. The implied oath being this. If I don't keep my promise, then my name means nothing. I am not worth following. Those are strong words. But the thing is, in the repetition of his promise over and over again, in the taking of an oath, the Lord is doing something. The Lord is relocating the hope of Abraham from his circumstances, from what he, Abraham, perceived he could do. He's relocating that hope to who God is, to what only God can and would do. God was relocating where hope could be found, where hope could be relied upon, not just for Abraham, but for all the world. And that's what the author is trying to tell his original audience, and by extension us. The author of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand this. It's not just to Abraham that God has sworn an oath. It's to you. It's to you. It's to me. It's to us. This is big. This is very, very significant. This means something. This means the Lord understands 
The Lord understands we can know our Bibles. We can repeat the gospel. We can put our trust in him. We can recognize his blessings. We can see all sorts of evidence of his grace. We can walk by faith, but God understands that sometimes that faith will have moments when it's not as strong as it ought to be, that we will struggle with assurance and we will struggle to believe that God's promises to us will come true. The Lord recognizes the moments when our faith can be weakened. When the moments when our faith can be weakened and we can begin to lose hope. The Lord recognizes that we can begin to lose hope. To lose hope. I didn't know. I didn't know I was going to struggle with chronic illness. I didn't know I was going to have to outlive my son or daughter. I didn't know I was going to have to deal with marital infidelity. I didn't know I was going to have to raise my children on my own. I didn't know that I was going to struggle with depression for year after year after year without relief. I didn't know I would become addicted to alcohol, addicted to painkillers. I didn't know it was going to be so hard to take care of my parents. The Lord understands. The Lord understands that sometimes the sheer weariness of those experiences that I just outlined, and so many others, the sheer weariness of those experiences can wear us down, and so God makes an oath to us. God swears, God swears to us that he has our six, that he's got our back, our front, our side, and every angle of our lives we can imagine. God gives us his word that he can reconcile our past, that he is with us in our present, and that he will never, ever leave us in the future. The Lord realizes that his timing is not our timing, and that as his children, like all children, we are not good at waiting. God recognizes in our impatience how easily we can become forgetful, distracted, and sometimes insecure. The Lord knows it is most often when we are operating out of a place of insecurity that we get ourselves in the most trouble. And so if we notice, have you noticed it before? This is why God gives us his word. God, we have a Bible. If you notice, God spends a lot of time through his word repeating his promises of love for us. There are a lot of things in that book. But in the midst of a lot of things, what you cannot help but miss is God repeating his promises over and over and over and over and over and over, and over, and over, and over again. Promises of love, promises of grace, promises of what he will accomplish for us and through us. Page after page, verse after verse, the Lord swears to us that everything is going to be all right, that everything will work out exactly as he's planned for us. The Lord gives us his word over and over again to reassure us, not because his word is weak, somehow suspect, questionable, not sure, but because our faith is so easily weakened. But again, God gives us his word to us repeatedly for more than just our reassurance, more than just some 
temporary passing comfort, more than just as a pat on the back, it's going to be okay. As we see in the example of Abraham, the Lord keeps repeating his promises in order to relocate our hope, to move our hope away from anything or anyone else but him. And that just begs the question this morning, is that where your, our hope is? Is that where your hope is? In him? In what or in whom do you place your hope? Is your hope in your circumstances? Pretty common. Because if your hope is in your circumstances, your circumstances can change. Your circumstances will change. Fortunes rise and fall. Opportunities come and go. Life happens, and not all of it good. Stuff goes wrong. We go wrong. And try as we may, insist as we do, not everything is within our control. Are we placing our hope in our circumstances? Do we think that hope is optimism? Because here it is, biblical hope is not merely optimism. These are not the same thing. They are opposed to each other. Biblical hope is not optimism. Optimism is a vague sense that things will probably turn out all right. Optimism is about choosing to see how circumstances, however difficult, could work out for the best. A pessimist goes, they're never going to work out. But biblical hope is not optimism because biblical hope isn't about having faith in faith. Biblical hope is based on a person, not optimism. But then again, our hope can't be based on just any person, can it? As we've already established, people lie. We deceive ourselves. We're broken. We're flawed. Intentionally or unintentionally, purposefully or accidentally, we inevitably let each other down because we let ourselves down. So biblical hope isn't based on just any person. Biblical hope is based on only one. Only one person who ever lived. Only one person who died and then rose again. And the Lord wants us to have our hope in him. In fact, God desires this so much that he would become our hope that God hasn't just given us his word. God has become that word made flesh. The hope that the Lord wants us to have in him he has personified for us in Jesus Christ. By coming down in Christ, by, by through Jesus offering us his life all the way to the cross and then defeating death with his resurrection, God is relocating our hope. God is relocating our hope from our circumstances that always change to him, the God who never changes, whom we can always rely on. The Lord is relocating our hope from being in ourselves what we think or try or might accomplish to what the Lord without hesitation is accomplishing, to what the Lord without failure will bring to completion. And what is that? What are we hoping for? It is God who is transforming us into our best eternal selves. It is God reconciling all that has been wrong, all that is wrong in this world, and making it right. It is God reshaping all creation as it was always intended to be. That's our hope. And that hope is in Christ. That hope is Christ. In fact, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, probably the most memorable part of this passage, a beautiful verse, as he says, the God who is our hope, the hope we have in Jesus Christ is an anchor for our souls. An anchor 
for our souls. When we picture, we think of an anchor and how it works, we picture it attached to a boat or a ship, fastened to some part of the hull, and dropped in the water to ensure that the craft remains grounded, to prevent the vessel from drifting away from its secure position and just wandering out to sea. The kind of anchor we imagine drops down from the boat, lowered into the water, the anchor point is dug into the sea bottom. In being our anchor, the writer describes Jesus has dropped down from heaven to earth, but as the writer of Hebrews describes it, sort of mixing his metaphors a bit, the anchor point of Christ is not under the surface, but behind the curtain, in the inner sanctuary. What's being referred here to here is what's known as the Holy of Holies, described in the Old Testament as the innermost place in the Jerusalem temple that represented the presence of God with his people. And the author is going to go on to develop this picture, this idea of the inner sanctuary, much more fully later in this letter. All we need to understand right now, all we need to get, what he's trying to tell us, is Jesus as our anchor isn't fastened to the former temporary housing of the presence of God, the former temple in Jerusalem, which, by the way, no longer stands. No, Jesus as our anchor dropped down from heaven's heights to earth is fastened, the writer wants us to understand, to the actual presence joined to the very heart of God. This is the hope we are forever linked to in Christ. The intersection of heaven and earth the work of the cross and the resurrection, the very kingdom of God continuing to unfold and ever expanding to make all things new. And that hope, our hope in Jesus, our hope that is Christ is steady and secure. It will hold no matter what. Through Abraham, God gave his word to us. Through Christ, God became that word for us. God swears an oath to us. God becomes his promise to us in the flesh so that we would have hope, so that we would anchor our hope in him, in Jesus. And so I ask you again, is that where your hope is today? In Christ. Is that where your hope, will he be your hope tomorrow? So often, and I I know I'm, again, I'm confessing if no one else is, we, we go through life And then we hit a crisis moment in our lives. And when we hit a crisis moment in our lives, we call out to God, bam, something happens we didn't expect. Something happens that we never thought would happen to us. And I don't know about you, but I've been there. And all of a sudden in that moment, I'm not on my knees a lot, but now I'm on my knees and I'm crying out to God. God, I didn't know. I didn't think this was gonna happen. I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. Lord, I can't take this. And I put my hands together and I start to cry and I don't cry much. Lord, help me. Please help me. Lord, you gotta get me out of this. Lord, you don't understand. I didn't understand before, but I understand now. I'm putting my hope in you. My hope's in you. You're the only hope I've got, God. Please. And we put our hope in the Lord. And then things get better. And what happens next? We go back to putting our hope in our circumstances. I feel great. There's money in my bank account again. I have a job. She came back to me. I'm healed. Life is good. What happens? We go back to putting our confidence in ourselves. I just needed God to give me a little pick-me-up there. God, thanks for helping me out, but I got this now. Boy, I was not paying attention before. That's not going to happen to me again. This time, I'm going to be ready. I got this. No problem. 
not going to do that to me again. Oh, I can work this out. I got it from your God, no worries. We put our confidence in ourselves. And then trouble comes again. And that hope disappears. Beloved, God can and God will keep reassuring us. He will swear to us over and over again that he is with us and for us. But unless our hope is in the Lord, unless our hope is in his word, unless our hope is in his promise, until our hope is Jesus, not in the moment, but in every moment, we will always end up hopeless. We will always end up hopeless. In a world all too often built not on commitments to be kept, but bargains that can be had, the anchor of our hope rests in a God who does not negotiate with us, but promises to be with us and for us even as time and time again we break our word to him. We take oaths because we're prone to lie, to bend the truth, but the anchor of our hope rests in a God who is the truth, whose promises aren't flimsy, whose promises don't change. They aren't broken even when we deny the facts, even when we excuse ourselves of responsibility, even when we try to blame him. And as we keep casually swearing to God, I swear to God, I swear to God, I swear to God, sometimes even dismissively swearing at God, the anchor of our hope rests in the God who swears by himself to make good on everything he promised us, bearing all our pain and our chaos, the whole burden of our guilt and shame by wearing a crown of thorns and being cursed to death on a tree. The anchor of our hope rests in Jesus, who death took, but death could not hold, who conquered the grave so that you and I would have a lifeline to grab onto, a lifeline of resurrection that swings graciously through human history, that extends from the creation of all things to the everlasting redemption of all life as we know it. Beloved, we don't ever have to be hopeless. No matter what our lives may bring, we don't ever have to be hopeless if our hope is in Christ. So may the anchor of Christ steady us in the midst of the changing weather of this life. May the anchor of Christ steady you, whether today or tomorrow, whatever it brings. And let us be assured that whatever rains down on us, however long it crashes against us, it will not drown us. It will not bury us. Because our hope is in Jesus. And that hope, your hope, my hope in Jesus endures. That hope, our hope, your hope in Christ 